It's June 1718, off the coast of Beaufort, North Carolina. It's been three days since Blackbeard sent Steed Bonnet to Bath to investigate the possibility of obtaining the King's pardon from Governor Eden. Safely inside the small ship's boat, oars pulling gently through the sparkling waters, Bonnet now feels a rising sense of excitement. He's on his way back to Topsail Inlet to reunite with the fleet, with a freshly signed pardon in the pocket of his fine frock coat. He was pleasantly surprised, and more than a little relieved, to have been so warmly received by the Governor of North Carolina. He had enjoyed the conversation, too. A small taste of polite society again. The society he abandoned, along with his family and friends. If he's honest with himself, pirating hasn't been quite how he imagined. It's turned out to be rather hard work. Worse, he's struggled to gain the respect of his crew and most of all, the respect of his partner in crime, Blackbeard. Bonnet has never admitted the shame he feels about Blackbeard taking his ship from him, but he accepts he perhaps wasn't ready for command. And like a good student, he has been watching closely and learning. Today he feels revived. Things are looking up. He has succeeded in his mission and is eager to claim his reward. Blackbeard has agreed that Bonnet should resume command of his old ship, the Revenge. He feels ready for it. Adjusting his powdered wig, it's possible a smile creeps across his face as he scans the horizon. But his hopes are about to be dashed. Bonnet is bemused by what he finds at the inlet. The revenge is there, at anchor, but there is no sign of Blackbeard nor the adventure. Bonnet frantically clambers aboard and races through the ship, his ship. He calls out, but no response. The ship is empty. Down in the hold, Bonnet finds the remaining treasure and provisions are gone. Looted? His mind races. There's no sign of violence. He finds the captain's cabin empty and anything of any value gone. Well, almost. His great library of books are there, untouched. He suddenly feels very alone. On deck, trying not to panic, Bonnet scans the horizon with his spyglass. His heart leaps. On a not-too-distant shoreline, he spots movement. It's his crew. Perhaps there's an explanation after all. Once again, many illusions Bonnet has are quickly dashed. On retrieving the crew, he discovers the truth of Blackbeard's treachery. They are the 17 pirates still loyal to Bonnet, who Blackbeard marooned on Bogue Bank Island. The crew have been without food or water for days, and were resigning themselves to their fates when Bonnet arrives. Back aboard the Revenge, Bonnet listens to their tale. David Herriot, who had been in charge of the adventure before Blackbeard commandeered it, tells Bonnet how Blackbeard double-crossed them sailing off in the adventure with the company's treasure. Shocked, 
Bonnet braces himself on the handrail. Blackbeard has cheated the men out of their shares. Worse, in Bonnet's mind at least, Blackbeard has broken an agreement. A gentleman's word is his bond. Determined, Bonnet vows to take revenge. Though he doesn't know it yet, Steed Bonnet is about to embark on the final chapter, not only of his career as a pirate, but of his life. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. summer of 1718, things are changing quickly for pirates throughout the Americas. The Crown is ratcheting up the pressure, dispatching more naval units to protect trade and actively hunt pirates. Colonies, too, are changing tack, starting to take the lead on quashing the pirates they themselves had once encouraged. Caught in the shifting winds of change is Steed Bonnet, as was Blackbeard. If only Bonnet could know that a grisly fate was already awaiting Blackbeard and his crew, things might have ended very differently. After days of searching for Blackbeard, Bonnet has a decision to make. He has a good ship, he has a willing crew, and stack of pardons. They are free men. Well, free from the law, anyway. They are also desperate, penniless, and probably starving. Bonnet likely knows he won't be long before the situation becomes desperate. He brings his men together. In Bath, Bonnet heard rumours that Denmark is at war with Spain. In fact, rumours are rife that all of Europe could soon be back at war. State-sanctioned piracy, he believes, is about to come back in fashion. Bonnet suggests they sail to the Danish colony of St. Thomas to gain a privateering commission. Jeremy Moss is the author of The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate, Steed Bonnet. When he gets his pardon, all the literature says that he's going to go back to St. Thomas and obtain a letter of mark. He's going to be a privateer and seek out Spanish and Dutch ships. So he either really meant to go back to St. Thomas um, and he was trying to preserve his pardon, or he was intending to head back to the Caribbean and eventually make his way back home. I don't know if he's going back to his wife or not, but you're right. I've been gone a year and a half. I've left my three children and my wife there. For him to think that he can just do whatever he wants, that certainly shows his privilege, right? Which is how he got himself in the mess to begin with. But he doesn't make it that far. Just days later, a fateful encounter with a small trading vessel changes everything. 
they learn of Blackbeard's whereabouts. Bonnet orders the helmsman to plot a course for the Ocracoke Inlet in North Carolina. We don't know if a vote is held, but it's likely many of the crew are as keen as Bonnet is. Their ship is called the Revenge, after all. Though you would think that at least some question the wisdom of going after the most feared pirate in North America. Bonnet himself can't have forgotten his own checkered past in sea battles. This could be a suicide mission. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Bonnet's stock and credibility among the other pirates seems to have kind of risen and fallen and risen and fallen. It seems like he was probably a very uneven pirate commander. Not surprising in that it's very clear when Bonnet left Barbados, he didn't have any sailing experience. He certainly didn't have any pirate experience. And his very first act of piracy was trying to apparently take on a, some kind of Spanish warship that got him terribly injured, which is how he ended up in Nassau to begin with. So he was not starting with this maritime background. He was a slave plantation owner from a sugar plantation managing society, right? A landlubber. Blackbeard's latest snub pushes Bonnet over the edge. It's hard to know if he is simply determined to seek justice or just blinded by rage. The last desperate act of a fragile man. The animosity that he has toward Blackbeard tells him that, look, I'm going to chase him down, which to me is fascinating because I would be personally scared of Blackbeard. Everything that you hear about him is like you would not want to pick a fight with this man. And here you have Bonnet, regardless of what had happened before with the Spanish man of war and the Protestant Caesar and with Blackbeard himself, he's going to go chase after him. So the courage or stupidity of this inexperienced man is just unbelievable. It's one of those instances that makes me think maybe he may not have had everything together in his mind, right? That disorder of the mind may be real, or maybe he was just so enraged and so fed up that he's decided he had nothing to lose. Four days later, the revenge enters the Ocracoke Inlet. Bonnet stands at midship, his eyes peeled, his heart racing. The crew and the guns are primed and ready. But once again, instead of finding Blackbeard, all Bonnet finds is disappointment. The waters around Ocracoke are deserted. Blackbeard is gone. Little does Bonnet know, Blackbeard is himself now in Bath, cutting a deal with Governor Charles Eden the same governor who Bonnet had shared pleasantries with just a few weeks ago. Bonnet, fuming, hides in his cabin. He buries his face in his soft, uncalloused hands. For over a year, he has been a pirate, and what does he have to show for it? A growing pile of defeats. One might expect Bonnet to finally cut his losses, to use his pardon and sail on to St. Thomas as planned or maybe even call it a day on pirating altogether. Instead, he explodes from his cabin and orders the helmsman to head towards Virginia and back to a life of piracy. A bold decision, but not an unusual one. Bonnet and his crew are in good company. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. About 200 pirates total would end up taking the pardon, including some really famous ones like Benjamin Hornigold and Jack Rackham. Soon enough, about 100 of those, half of those pirates actually went back into piracy after. 
So they would take the pardon for a while to get themselves reestablished, maybe lie low for a bit. And then for whatever reason, whatever their personal decision was, they would go right back to piracy. So the pardon he's offering was only really a temporary solution. It's August 1718. Bonnet's quick return to piracy is also a chance to reinvent himself. He sheds the name of Steed Bonnet in favour of Captain Thomas. The Revenge is also rechristened the Royal James. He thinks these new names will protect him. The authorities will be chasing Captain Thomas, not Steed Bonnet. Steed Bonnet has renounced piracy. He knows if Steed Bonnet is caught pirating, the colonial authorities will show no mercy. He, along with his entire crew, will be hanged. Here's the thing, he takes a pardon, but he doesn't actually want to give up piracy. He just doesn't want to be arrested. So he actually decides to start sailing under a different name of Captain Thomas, and he renames the Revenge. He wanted to protect his new reputation and his existing pardon just in case he would actually make his way back into the real world. So he adopted a new alias and he started to try to hide out a little bit in order to preserve his pardon. Throughout the summer of 1718, Bonnet haunts the Delaware Bay, taking and plundering every ship he encounters. He adds two sloops to his new pirate fleet. Is Bonnet's renewed determination an effort to prove something to the world or to himself? a demand to be respected and feared. And why not? Without him, Blackbeard would be nothing. After all, it was Bonnet's ship and crew who picked the unknown brigand Edward Thatch out of obscurity on Nassau and fueled his success. Well, that's how Bonnet might see it anyway. In any case, not all of Bonnet's crew are on board with the drive to criminality. His history of recklessness and erratic behavior may worry some. Or perhaps they can sense the hangman's noose closing in. Unbeknownst to Bonnet, eight crewmen jump ship. In fact, they abscond with a recently captured sloop. Though a blow to morale, the material loss is not devastating. As a matter of fact, as Captain Thomas, Bonnet has had a pretty successful run of pirating. In kind of late August 1718, Bonnet has kind of settled in. Right, so he had a tremendous amount of experience from the year and a half that he had sailed. I think that he learned a lot from Blackbeard. It's clear from his books, at least, that he liked to read and learn. So I assume that he took kind of a university-like approach to how he was gonna be a pirate. They had a lot of success and continued to take ships and things were going relatively well for Bonnet. It's August 12th, 1718. The Royal James has sprung a leak. Months of pirating and wear and tear have taken their toll on the vessels. Bonnet's men manage to plug it, but it needs immediate attention. They sail to the quiet and remote estuary of the Cape Fear River. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Cape Fear was one of a number of preferred pirate rendezvous spots during the golden age of piracy because it had a number of ideal characteristics. You're a pirate, you're far from Nassau, you often are in situations where you need a place to hide, rest, recuperate, get water. At low tides, you can scrape all the kelp and barnacles and stuff off the hull that slow you down. 
You know, there were often occasions where they needed to do all these things and they were thousands of miles from NASA. So what you need a place that is out of the way, unoccupied, hidden from view, and lacking any sovereign authority. Bonnet remains in Cape Fear for weeks. The repairs take their time, and so they decide to wait out the coming hurricane season. This gives the pirates time to consider their next move. Do they continue pirating and hope their aliases hold up? Or do they seek out a privateering commission as planned? We'll never know what they intended. They've run out of time. Their ship has been spotted, and word has spread through South Carolina that a pirate sloop of 10 guns and 60 men with two prizes are sitting in the Cape Fear River, grounded and vulnerable. By September, South Carolina Governor Robert Johnson has received the reports and is making a plan. Although he's unaware of the identity of the pirate sloops now at Cape Fear, Johnson has had some bad experiences with pirates. And one pirate in particular, it seems Bonnet's past, has caught up with him. And then the beginning of the end starts to happen for Bonnet, which is the governor of South Carolina, Robert Johnson, who had already had significant experience with pirates, including Steve Bonnet once and Blackbeard's Fatillo later, where there was a large blockade of Charleston. They had already had two significant run-ins with Bonnet, but they heard that there were pirates in the Cape Fear and they sent up a mercenary force of two ships to go capture them. Governor Johnson is unlike his counterpart in North Carolina, Charles Eden, who happily struck deals with Bonnet and Blackbeard. He's more like Virginia's governor, Alexander Spotswood. Johnson wants pirates eradicated, full stop. Without a Royal Navy vessel to call on, Johnson turns to a local plantation owner and merchant captain for help. Colonel William Rett of the Provincial Militia, a war hero and experienced naval commander who successfully fought off a Spanish invasion of the Carolinas in the last war. Rett also happens to loathe pirates. In 1699, Rett was captured and held by Dutch buccaneers. So when Governor Johnson asks him to go pirate hunting, Rett is happy to oblige. He has two sloops made ready, the Henry and the Sea Nymph, each armed with eight guns and crews of 70 and 60 men. It's September 26, 1718. Red's pirate hunting flotilla approaches the mouth of the Cape Fear River. Red puts the spyglass to his eye and scans the waters. Bonnet's fleet is nowhere to be seen. Up in the crow's nest, the dark-haired lookout sees three masts rising above the nearby peninsula. He sounds the alarm. It's the pirates. No sooner has Colonel Rett given the command to proceed after the anchored pirates, both the Henry and the Sea Nymph grind to a halt. It's low tide, and they've run aground on the shallow banks of Cape Fear. The ships are stuck. Rett knows that they won't be afloat again until morning. The attack will have to wait. They also lost the element of surprise. On the other side of the peninsula, Bonnet's men spot the flotilla. The hunters are about to be hunted. At dusk, Bonnet sends three canoes out on a reconnaissance mission. 
believing the grounded vessels to be merchant ships. To the pirates, they look like easy pickings. But as the canoes approach, they realize their mistake. The ships aren't merchant ships. They are sloops of war armed to the teeth and ready for battle. They turned back immediately, headed back to Bonnet's ship unharmed, but with news that there were people there that were trying to take Bonnet and capture him. So instead of fleeing at night, Bonnet decided he was going to fight his way back out to sea the next morning, as soon as daylight hit. So the pirates prepared all night to pass these British sloops. Bonnet makes a bold or perhaps reckless decision. Instead of fleeing upriver, he decides to fight past the unknown fleet back into open waters. Rumors circulate amongst Bonnet's crew that these enemy ships belong to Blackbeard himself. Little do they know that at this very moment, just a hundred or so miles away, Blackbeard is also being hunted by a colonial naval expedition. It would seem the two pirate captains share similar fates, if nothing else. Not all of Bonnet's crew are prepared to fight, perhaps wary of his poor track record in battle. Some protest. Bonnet flies into a fit of rage. He won't be doubted or betrayed. Not again, not this time. With a pistol in his hands, he threatens anyone who won't fight, saying he will blow their brains out if they refuse. That night, amongst the scrambling preparations, Bonnet hurriedly writes a letter to Governor Johnson of South Carolina to be sent if he's victorious. He declares that should he escape, he'll turn on Charleston once again, burning every vessel he can. It's the morning of September 27th, 1718. The Royal James is underway, rapidly sailing downriver heading straight for the Carolinians. Bonnet watches Red's ships. He wants to lure him into a running fight and escape into the open ocean. The pirates and Red's vessels head straight for one another. All maneuver for position whilst navigating the perilously narrow estuary. But the shallow waters of Cape Fear River thwart all three ships. The Royal James, the Henry and the Sea Nymph are all grounded once again. Loud curses rise up from the captains and crews. It's a comedy of errors that has now become synonymous with Bonnet's piratical career. So you have these three ships that are just stuck in a sandbar. It's eventually called the Battle of the Sandbar. And at this point, there's only two ships near each other. That's the Henry and the Royal James Bonnet ship. They were the only ones that were within range of each other. So for five to six hours during this low tide where they were stuck, you had these two ships that were just dueling with each other, really unable to move. Now the Henry was cocked in a position that their deck was open to Bonnet's ship. So they were essentially just sitting ducks, right? There was nothing that they could hide behind to protect them. The angle that they were angled at allowed for a lot of cannon fire from Bonnet's ship to go straight at them. Now Bonnet, on the other hand, was tipped upward in the opposite direction. So they could use the ship as essentially uh, defense while they were you know, shooting over the top and provided a bulwark against this enemy fire. So during this fighting, most of the pirates were on their deck shooting with small arms fire, including Bonnet. And then most of the Colonel Rett's crew was hiding inside of the ship, waiting it out. The Royal 
James is locked in a five-hour firefight with the Henry while the low tides keep them stranded. It's really a one-way barrage, with the pirates using their position to relentlessly bombard Red's vessel. The sea nymph is stuck further off and can only sit and watch it all unfold. As bullets whiz across the bow of the Royal James, Bonnet notices one of his crew members, a man named Thomas Nichols, is not fighting. Bonnet orders him to take up arms, but he refuses. Bonnet stomps towards Nichols, waving his pistol at him and threatening to kill him where he stands if he doesn't fight. Bonnet and Nichols duck, only narrowly dodging a volley of bullets. Not all are so lucky. A crewman next to them is shot and falls dead. It is later reported the fallen pirate is loved very well by Bonnet. Seeing his dead crewman, Bonnet falls beside the body, forgetting his intention to kill Nichols. It's hard to imagine how this affected Bonnet. Once more he's facing defeat. They're outgunned, outnumbered, and badly exposed. And more dead pirates on his conscience. Turning away from his lifeless friend, he's heartened to see his men waving the Jolly Roger at their enemies jeering and mocking them. Perhaps it's at this point he decides. This will be his last stand. Here, as their captain. With typical bad luck, eventually the rising tide frees the Henry first. Rhett orders the sloop to move into deeper water. Recovered, the Henry plots a direct course for the Royal James. It is now free to position itself for a final broadside. The killer blow. On board the Royal James, Bonnet, grimacing but calm, gives a final order. He commands his gunner to blow the powder magazine. They won't be taken alive. They'll go out in a blaze of brilliant light and thunder. Maybe they'll even take Rhett with them. Unsurprisingly, Bonnet's crew refuse. They'd rather take their chances with the judge. One wonders if Bonnet is even surprised at this point. The Henry sails back into the inlet. A white flag of truce is waving aboard Bonnet's ship. Rhett has the pirate captain brought before him. Bonnet introduces himself as Captain Thomas. Well, it's worth a shot. Three days later, Colonel Rhett sets sail with the pirates in chains. It's October 3rd, 1718, in Charlestown, South Carolina. The last time Bonnet was in the harbor was during Blackbeard's blockade. Now, Bonnet and 30 or so pirates are prisoners of Colonel Rhett. Each one is nervous, but Bonnet, most of all. He knows this is likely to be his end. He will be tried and executed for his crimes. The people of Charlestown have turned out in numbers to celebrate their capture. Bonnet's blood runs cold. The pirates are put into the custody of Nathaniel Partridge, the Provost Marshal of South Carolina and Marshal of the Provincial Court of the Vice Admiralty. But Charlestown doesn't have a public prison. Instead, the pirates are detained in the Charlestown Watch House. 
Thirty men are crammed into a one-story brick building, jostling for space to lie down on a cold, wet floor. No doubt, many now regret the squandering of their pardons. But one pirate is conspicuously absent. Their captain. Right away, they put all of Bonnet's crew into essentially a jail or a dungeon, right? You think about one of these 17, 18s dungeons, it's dark, it's very packed, tight quarters, probably not very good food, etc. But Bonnet was treated differently, put into the marshal's house, right? So here you have the rest of his crew is suffering in jail, iron bars, etc. And you've got Bonnet who's in the house of the marshal, who's a respected man in town, probably a nice home, probably a good size, right in the middle of downtown Charleston. Bonnet's preferential treatment is due to his class and status. After all, he's not a common criminal, a lowly mariner from the gutters of Bristol or Boston. He's a colonial aristocrat, a wealthy landowner. He's a gentleman. Bonnet now rushes to embrace the former life and titles that he so happily abandoned in Barbados. As word spreads, Bonnet becomes the subject of much debate. Some of the social elite of Charlestown even become sympathetic. A few days into Bonnet's imprisonment in the home of Nathaniel Partridge, two more of Bonnet's crew are added. Sailing master David Harriet and bosun Ignatius Pell. Two men Bonnet likely trusts. After nearly three weeks of being locked up, Bonnet seizes on a chance for freedom. Only two sentries guard the marshal's house. Perhaps his colonial captors overestimate Bonnet's sense of honor. A plan begins to formulate. He confides in his sailing master, David Harriet. Bonnet will once again defy expectations. It's October 24th, 1718. Bonnet and Harriet make a break for it under cover of darkness. Bonnet has bribed the sentries to let them go. But the two men can't simply run around town even at night. They'd soon be recognized. So Steed Bonnet, a man only too comfortable playing make-believe, along with the more circumspect Harriet, sneak their way out of Charlestown in disguise. At a secret rendezvous on the edge of town by the banks of the river, local smuggler Robert Tuckerman is bemused by what is a bizarre sight. Under the moonlight, he's startled by two large women who come bursting out of the reeds and in a flurry of petticoats and aprons clamber into his canoe. After a moment of stunned silence, Tuckerman watches as one of the women removes her headscarf to reveal a freshly shaved, middle-aged man beneath. Steed Bonnet may have even taken a moment to straighten his gentleman's wig before commanding Tuckerman's servants to cast off. Tuckerman provides Bonnet with a small supply of guns and ammunition. He also promises to deliver a sloop to Bonnet in a few days. You gotta imagine, You've got one of the most significant pirates of the time who had blockaded Charleston with Blackbeard the year before, who was being held, and then all of a sudden he just slips out 
under the cover of darkness. Sure, he's dressed up in women's clothing, but come on, like you would imagine that they would have taken more significant security measures. Bonnet's escape is a public relations nightmare for Governor Johnson. The citizens of Charlestown suspect foul play. Accusations of bribery and conspiracy are aimed at the governor and the council. Many believe Governor Johnson personally assisted Bonnet in his escape. And the allegations only escalate, spreading outside South Carolina. The Boston Newsletter reports on Bonnet's escape, implying he had assistance from the inhabitants. It's easy to imagine Governor Johnson's frustration. After all, he sent Rhett to capture the pirates. But the public don't see it that way. To save face, Johnson issues a reward for Bonnet's recapture. 700 pounds, an absolute fortune at the time. Johnson also sends ships north and south, scouring the Carolinas for the escaped pirates and any conspirators. No doubt the lack of success raises even more eyebrows amongst the irate public. It's October 28, 1718. While Bonnet and Harriet are in the wind, his former crew are dragged before the judge. The Vice Admiralty Court has convened to try the surviving pirates of the Royal James. Without a jury, with a long list of witnesses, the outcome is beyond doubt. Dr. David Wilson is an academic and author of Suppressing Piracy in the Early 18th Century. It's at that point when the Vice Admiralty Courts are established that you can now try pirates without a jury in the colonies and execute them. When it comes to 1717, these processes are established and that, that makes a big difference because the minute the pirates are captured, they are tried in colonial courts and executed. They're getting a lot stricter, but they work very, very hard to arrest as many pirates as possible because now they're able to try and execute pirates at a much higher volume than ever before. This is the greatest extermination campaign of pirates ever. Nicholas Trott is the province of South Carolina's chief justice and serves as the presiding judge for the Vice Admiralty Court. Like many government officials, Chief Justice Trott detests pirates and sees them as enemies of mankind and an affront to society and God. Justice will be swift and his sentencing harsh. But what of Bonnet and Harriet? While their fellows are being tried, the escapees have set up camp on Sullivan's Island, not far from Charlestown. Bad weather and lack of provisions have delayed their progress. But Bonnet isn't only waiting out bad weather. Robert Zuckerman hasn't yet delivered the sloop, their only means of escape. As the days pass, anxieties grow. Bonnet won't wait any longer. He takes action. Unfortunately, and perhaps unsurprisingly, they are the actions of a colonial gentleman, not a notorious pirate. Bonnet writes a strongly worded letter to Tuckerman, reprimanding him for failing to deliver the sloop. Bonnet gives Tuckerman's enslaved servants the letter to deliver. It never reaches its destination. In Charlestown, sentries spot the enslaved servants and stop and search them. One of the sentries finds Bonnet's letter. The comedy of errors continues. 
Not quite believing his good fortune, Governor Johnson quickly sends Colonel Rhett to Sullivan Island. Bonnet and Harriet are still waiting at the camp, along with a black man and a Native American, when Rhett's troops surround them. One of the pirates raises the alarm, but it's too late. Before Bonnet can reach his pistol, Rhett's men open fire. Harriet and the other two men are killed instantly. Rhett captures Bonnet for the last time. It's November 6, 1718. There is no chance for a second escape. Bonnet is placed in custody and the trial preparations begin. Just like his crew, Nicholas Trott will proceed over Major Steed Bonnet's trial. Colonel William Rett, Trott's brother-in-law, will provide testimony against him, as will a number of his victims, as will the entire company of pirates. Bonnet will be roundly condemned by his enemies, his friends, and crewmates alike. Even from beyond the grave. It turns out David Herriot's deposition was taken before his fatal escape. The trials are basically for show, more for the public's benefit than the victims or the accused. The Attorney General, Richard Allen, is savage. He says the pirates are worse than any other predators found in nature. He states those wild beasts have neither rational souls, understanding, nor reason to guide their actions, or to distinguish between good and evil. But pirates prey on all mankind, their own species and fellow creatures, without distinction of nations or religions. Alain claims if piracy isn't stopped, the English plantations in America are doomed to destruction. Despite their pleas of not guilty, the prisoners make little or no defense. They all stick to the same line. They were following Bonnet's orders. In total, 29 of Bonnet's crew are found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Four are acquitted. And on November 9, 1718, all of the men found guilty were hanged. It's November 10th, 1718. In this trial, Major Steed Bonnet faces charges for feloniously and piratically taking the Sloop Francis and the Sloop Fortune. Bonnet pleads not guilty to both indictments, adding, My pleading not guilty is because I may have something to offer in my defense, and there I hope none of the bench will take it amiss. Thomas Hepworth of the prosecutors reminds all present of the long list of murders and robberies committed, including the 13 different vessels the Royal James attacked since they took the pardon. Bonnet begins his last desperate defense, though I must confess myself a sinner and the greatest of sinners, yet I am not guilty of what I am charged with. Bonnet tries to blame his hanged crew, saying he protested at the piracies committed and begged to be let off the ship. He claims that he was the one who was forced, all 13 times. Judge Trott isn't buying it. 
The prosecutor Richard Allen is particularly concerned about the public sympathy expressed for Bonnet. How can a man be said to be a man of honor, that he has lost all sense of honor and humanity, that has become an enemy of mankind? Bonnet's face grows ashen and gray as Alain argues that Bonnet is all the more guilty because of his privileged background. His learning and education is still a far greater aggravation because that generally softens men's manners and keeps them from becoming savage and brutish. But when these qualifications are perverted to wicked purposes and contrary to those ends for which God bestows them upon mankind, they become the worst of men. Bonnet looks pale. He wrings his soft, sweaty hands as the court offers its verdict. His knees rock. Major Steed Bonnet is found guilty of piracy. Bonnet spends the night in prison while he awaits the trial's completion. No doubt he has time to reflect on life and what little time he has left. On November 12th, a trembling Bonnet approaches the bench. Trot asks Bonnet if there's any last appeals he'd care to make to avoid a judgment of death. Steed Bonnet respectfully declines. It seems he's accepted his fate. Bonnet's final words stir the crowd, and his supporters protest. Many upper-class citizens, including women, did not wish to see Bonnet, the wayward gentleman, hanged. I think that the public sympathy for somebody like Bonnet is a real sympathy, right? This guy is, he has ruined his own life. It's a train wreck of a life. He had everything he possibly could have wanted and he spoiled it. And sometimes we still have sympathy for people like that because of marital strife and issues at home and being an orphan, losing a child, it elicits some sympathy. But public sympathy is not enough to save Bonnet. Indeed, in the eyes of the morally outraged prosecution, it may have made matters worse for him. Judge Trott addresses Major Steed Bonnet. You shall be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and the God of infinite mercy be merciful to your soul. Bonnet is forced to wait for nearly a month for his final date with destiny. While he waits, it's possible that Bonnet learned about the capture of and beheading of Blackbeard on the 22nd of November. You have to wonder if this brings him any solace. Perhaps a sense of justice? Perhaps it just makes him all the more sad. We'll never know. Throughout the remainder of November 1718, and leading up to his execution, public sympathy continues to swell in support of pardoning Bonnet. Young women in particular begged for Governor Johnson to spare his life. Charlestown was a weird place because there were a lot of connections between Barbados and Charleston at the time. In fact, they were considered sister colonies. They shared a lot. They traded a lot. They had a lot of family members that shared. And there were essentially protests in the street, mostly by women, which I think is an interesting component of it, to save Steve Bonnet, to take pity on him. And it doesn't make sense to me. I, I've not seen enough, and I've tried to research this more and more about why this is true. But it must be because he was a gentleman, somebody that was you know, educated, and more like them, and maybe it just wasn't fair that he'd be executed in the same way that these other pirates were. But there was a lot of protests related to that, which I always thought was fascinating. Perhaps encouraged by the outpouring of public sympathy, 
Bonnet tries to appeal the sentence. He pleads to have his case reviewed in England. Even Colonel Rett, the man who captured Bonnet twice, seems sympathetic and offers to escort Bonnet to England. So here you have this guy that's been in two gun battles with Bonnet and somehow became friendly enough to say, you know what, I'll take you. I'll, I'll take you over if the governor will allow you to do that. But Governor Johnson is unmoved. With the execution fast approaching, Bonnet throws himself at Johnson's mercy. Bonnet pens a final letter. Look upon me with tender bowels of pity and compassion. For the Lord's sake, dear sir, that as you are Christian, you will be as charitable as to have mercy and compassion on my miserable soul. He goes on, asking to be exiled or banished, imprisoned, even dismembered, if only he's allowed to live and dedicate his life to God. He signs, Your honor's most miserable and afflicted servant, Steed Bonnet. Governor Johnson remains unmoved. Bonnet will hang. December 10th, 1718, Major Steed Bonnet ascends the gallows at White Point. He utters prayers under his breath, oblivious to the raucous crowd, some of whom mock and jeer, while others offer him support. As the last words are said and the noose is lowered, does his life flash before his eyes? Perhaps his wife Mary, his three sons, his daughter, why did he leave them? Why did he leave his comfortable life? Why did he turn pirate? Perhaps there's no explanation. Bonnie is silent as he clutches a wilted bouquet in his shackled hands. I was asked once, was he a gentleman because of his upbringing or was he a gentleman and because he how he held himself out to other people? And I'm convinced just by his interactions with Rhett the way that the women of Charleston were having these protests for him, the fact that he made it in with Blackbeard, one of the most ferocious pirates of all time, was entrusted with the crew, even though he had no significant experience, that at the very least, he was an advocate for himself and that he was charismatic and that people genuinely liked him. Major Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate, the man who arguably made Blackbeard, passes into history. Unique, Contradictory, but without doubt, a legend. Next week on Real Pirates. The capture and executions of Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet mark a turning point in the war on pirates. By the end of 1718, pirates are being hanged in their dozens across the Americas. But the war is far from over. Next week, we investigate the reasons why piracy was ever able to reach this level of freewheeling chaos. The same reasons which explain why piracy is bound to continue for some time yet. We switch sides to see the conflict from the point of view of a Royal Naval officer, the infamous pirate hunter, Captain Francis Hume. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. 
executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Borrow for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons and Alison Nugent. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres-Sole. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.